Welcome back to Legally Empowered. I'm your host, Sahara Pines, and I'm so excited to bring this podcast to you. As an attorney and former business owner myself, I'm passionate about drawing on my own experience and insight to set my female clients up for success. I know my guest today feels the same. Brian Goodman focuses her practice on guiding employers on all aspects of employment law. She represents employers in state and federal lawsuits and administrative proceedings involving discrimination, sexual harassment, and wage and hour claims. She also advises clients on compliance with local, state, and federal laws regarding hiring and termination, discipline, discrimination, retaliation, and wage and hour issues. Bryn works closely with clients to draft and revise their handbooks and policies, as well as employment, separation, confidentiality, and non-competition agreements. She also conducts anti-discrimination, harassment, and diversity training. Welcome, Bryn. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm really excited that we decided on the topic of websites and the legal issues that are surrounding one of an entrepreneur's most important marketing tools, right? So what laws should we be thinking about at the outset of this conversation? Right. So when disability laws were written, uh, they didn't consider uh, that websites would be in existence. And so <laughs> that's what right. disability laws were intended to protect were the public's access to accommodations, so goods or services that a business is providing. So the laws now are trying, you know, the case law and the courts are trying to sort of shoehorn these disability laws to protecting people and the public to be able to access um, websites and saying, you know, people with disabilities should be able to access a physical store and this law protects them and enables them to have a ramp or an elevator so they can get into a physical store and receive goods or services. And cases are, are being filed to say, hey, the same type of consideration should be made for accessing a website. So someone who is visually impaired should be able to use a screen reader software to interact and access a website's content. And so that's something that is in many jurisdictions, if you don't have accessibility features on your website, you could be violating a disability accommodation law, meaning that a person who is visually impaired could say, you're denying me access to goods and services and violating Title III of the Americans with Disabilities Act or state and local law because I can't use my screen reader software to access your goods or services. So has the law actually been changed or the cases are sort of developing the law in this area? Yeah, and the law was ne has never been rewritten on this point, and the interesting, right? And regulations have been floated and proposed, but never actually issued. There's never been comments on any regulations. There's just been talk of it, but there, there have been, um, you know, third-party guidance on this issue. So basically, to be in compliance, there's something called the WCAG 2.0 AA guidelines. Which oh, are, that sounds very ominous. Uh, <laughs> website content accessibility guidelines <laughs> is basically what that stands for. Um, and Great. so, but but they are ominous because it, there's a lot of technical information, and you as a, a solo entrepreneur or even just a small business owner, it's going to be really difficult to digest that information 
I mean, you probably hired someone to to set up your site or or you know write the code for your site. You're going to need to hire someone to make sure that your website is compliant with these guidelines. So maybe at the outset, so wait. go ahead. So the person that sets up my website doesn't know about these laws. Maybe not. So when you're when you're looking at the contract that you're signing to have someone prepare your website or you know, create your website and the content, you're going to want to ask them, you know, is this going to be WCAG 2.0 compliant? And if they look at you cross-eyed, you're going to want to try and find a different vendor <laughs> because, because this is something that if you can, if you can yeah. find someone who's knowledgeable at the outset, you're going to save yourself a lot of time and money. Some of the big website hosting companies where you can go online and create a website in maybe not a very good one, but a website in like an hour. Have you seen any of their vendor contracts? Do you know generally uh, some of those bigger players, uh, what is it, WordPress, uh, GoDaddy, those types of companies, do you know whether they're offering that, those services? What we've seen is those contracts typically have strong indemnification provisions in favor of the provider. So you as a mm. solo, you know, you as an entrepreneur or a, a business owner, a small business owner, you're probably going to have signed a contract that will not permit you to go after the website provider or the person who, who created the website like WordPress. Instead, actually, if they're sued, you may, not, you may have to indemnify them. The only thing that's going to change that is if enough people look at the contract and refuse to use the businesses that do not provide assurances as to accessibility, then demand will change the practice. But right now it hasn't risen to that level. But I think it might, Sahara, because the numbers of cases being filed on this issue is skyrocketing. So okay, tell me what you're seeing. In 2021, 688 website accessibility lawsuits were filed in New York federal court just in Q4. And mm. um, and that was an uptick from 272 in Q3. And mainly these attorneys are forum shopping. So they're, they're going, we're seeing a lot of cases filed in the Southern District of New York and California state and federal courts. And that doesn't mean the website needs to be headquartered in New York because the basis for the suit Obviously is that, a website is everywhere, right? Yeah, so correct. they're just trying to find the best court that's going to be most favorable. Correct. That's right. So you can't, you know, you can't turn a blind eye if you if you happen to be located in Arizona you still might get mm -hmm. a lawsuit filed in one of these venues that is favorable to plaintiffs. And one of these plaintiff counsels, right, all they're doing is sitting at a desk, um, probably in their cozy slippers, and searching for websites that might be inaccessible. And then they have to find a client, or you think they have clients already? Yeah, we're seeing the same the same plaintiffs file these suits over and over again. So for anyone who's familiar with the lawsuits that were filed for you know accessibility to to pools, for instance, or, or ramps um, at stores or elevators, there were always willing plaintiffs that would file multiple suits against multiple venues, claiming I tried to access your venue and I couldn't because it's inaccessible and not in compliance with the disability law. So I'm suing you to make the change. And, and it's a pretty easy lawsuit to get going. They're all the same. They're all pretty much verbatim of the one that was filed before. And that's why one, you know, one firm can file 
500 of these suits in a two month period, just like that. It's not a matter of whether you will, you will be sued if you're not aware and in compliance with this law. It's a matter of when, because the number of attorneys you know, taking on these kinds of cases is increasing because it's just easy for an attorney to to file the lawsuit, um, you know, requires very little work on their part. And most of the time, there aren't a whole lot of defenses. But we can talk about those if you want, Sarah. What's in it for the plaintiff? What are they getting out of this? Right. So in terms of damages and penalties, Title III doesn't allow for plaintiff to receive any kind of damages, but they are entitled to attorney's fees and injunctive relief. So what's going to be expensive for the, the person hosting the website is you're going to have to pay for your attorney. If you lose, you're going to have to pay the plaintiff's attorney's fees. And remediation is not cheap. These websites can cost $10,000 to review and remediate, depending on how many subpages there are within the website. So if you don't get it right on the first go around, your website is going to be exponentially more expensive than it was to set up to, to remediate. Mm -hmm. But why, as a plaintiff, would I want to file claims against 500 different companies if I'm not getting anything out of it? Well, your attorney is getting their attorney's fees, and there are plenty of plaintiffs who who are willing to take up a cause and are likely going mm -hmm. to be receiving you know, some type of compensation from the attorney that's not mm -hmm. technically damages, but they're probably receiving something for their time. So when you get a demand letter, let's say, the demand is basically that the company fixes the website. It's not that their client receives $10,000 um, for pain and suffering or for the inability to access the website at the time that they wanted to. That's right. The demand would be to remediate, but there would also be included a demand for attorney's fees, which will likely be higher than what it actually cost the attorney to prepare the lawsuit because the argument being that, you know, you would not have remediated your website had I not filed this. So if you don't settle now, I'm going to incur 10000 or more dollars in attorney's fees, pay that now, and I'll go away. I mean, it would ultimately end up costing, if you went to trial on something like this, far more than $10,000. Um, sure. But but that's the that's the argument that you'll hear from the plaintiff's lawyers who are trying to essentially make a quick buck. Exhibit A, why so many people get bad names in the legal industry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. I'd love to hear some of the details of some of the cases that, that you're working on or the cases that you're seeing. I, I really find this area so interesting and, and I know so much is evolving. Um, my only experience in this area, honestly, so don't call me with questions, um, was gosh, like 20 years ago, I was representing a bank and a group of blind individuals, um, adv advocacy group, came forward and said that the ATMs were not accessible. And I uh, had to go and do some research on site and close my eyes and wear a blindfold and Gosh, it was pretty difficult. Uh, granted, I didn't have the same training as someone who um, has a visual disability, but it resulted in a 
bank-wide change in all of their ATMs. And of course, that's the standard that, that we see today when we go to an ATM. So it has evolved quite a bit. Sarah, that's an interesting story about the ATMs. I think, yeah, that's what we saw all the time were you maybe get a case at a restaurant if you didn't have a Braille menu. You'd certainly have access to you know, a store. The ramp would need to have a certain gradient so that you could you know, roll up the ramp on your own. If you were in a wheelchair, there would have to be bars in restrooms, you know, so that if you were in a wheelchair, you could access the restroom while um, while at a restaurant or at a hotel or anywhere that would be considered a public accommodation. But now what it is, is can my screen reader software read out loud how to purchase whatever it might be, whatever goods and services that the website might provide? The case law is evolving in this area. As I said, the law itself doesn't doesn't actually include website as a place of public accommodation. The way that courts have been determining that these laws apply to websites is because they view a website as akin to a sales establishment. There are mm-hmm. actually, yeah, there are actually 12 specified categories of places of accommodation. And so the courts will see a website as a place selling goods or services. And, and that's how the disability laws would apply. Now, there's differing opinions in different jurisdictions. And even in New York, we have conflicting findings. So the Eastern District of New York recently had two cases um, that found that if the website is not connected to a physical store, then it's not a place of public accommodation. So a website would not, yeah. So the ADA does not apply to online only business according to several cases in the Eastern District of New York. Okay, but that's not necessarily true across the entire country. So a sole online business still needs to pay attention to this stuff, right? Correct. For instance, the Southern District of New York Uh, found exactly the opposite, that regardless of whether or not you have a physical brick-and-mortar location, you still need to comply with accessibility standards to comply with the ADA. So, for instance, the cases that we've seen in the Eastern District are, you know, a newspaper with no public-facing physical retail location and a website that sold online services to improve a user's online presence but didn't, didn't do anything other than sell online services. So both of those had no public phasing physical retail operations and they were considered they were they were the cases were dismissed and the court found that the ADA did not apply because these were not places of public accommodations. You know, on the flip side, the Southern District has several cases that say even if it's a, only an online presence, you're subject to these disability discrimination laws and to your point, Sahara, not only do you need to pay attention because you might not be lucky enough to get sued in the Eastern District of New York, <laughs> but also because state and local laws don't follow the same narrow definition as the ADA. And so a lot of these state and local laws have been amended more recently to explicitly include websites. So you want to be aware of accessibility issues because you don't want to run afoul of your of your state and local law even setting aside the potential liability under the the federal law. Right. So you mentioned the screen readers. What other types of features does a website need in order to be ADA compliant or otherwise accessible? 
So another um, thing to consider is if you have videos on your website, you want to have a sign language option or closed captioning. You want to um, ensure that if you have images on your website, that that, that can also be described and is not just an image that that someone can't can't access if they if they can't see. Um, mm. there, there's also an issue with people who may not be entirely blind but are are visually impaired. The contrast levels on your websites need to be considered. So if you have you know dark text on a dark background, that that's going to be problematic. Okay, that's really helpful. What other practical advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are either just building their websites or maybe who are looking at a website revamp? So if you're just building your website or if you've just built it and just spent a couple thousand dollars, there are free online tools that you can use. There's something called um, the Website Accessibility Evaluation Tool, WAVE. And so you can go on wave.webaim.org and, and put your website name in there and it'll come up and tell you, you know, preliminary violations or incompatibility. Um, so if you, like I said, if you just had your website created, you know, it might be good to run, run your website through that tool and then go back to the creator of the website and say, hey, I, I need you to, to fix this for me. We'll, we'll get that up on the show notes so you can check that out after the show. I think that'll be a really helpful tool for our listeners. Great. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the best, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so the best, um, the best thing to do is to make sure that the contracts you're signing with your website content creators have um, provisions that, that, consider accessibility and whether the site is accessible to um, to the users. So just to back up a little bit, uh, who does this apply to? Uh, you mentioned the Eastern District, Southern District issue of whether or not you're exclusively an online business. But like, what if I have a personal website or my daughter starts a charity and gets a website off of one of these uh, providers and designs it herself or has somebody help her, does she need to worry about that type of compliance at sort of a personalized level rather than a business level? So to trigger the, you know, the obligations that come within the purview of the law, the questions you're going to ask yourself is, you know, is my website engaging in commercial activity for the benefit of the general public? That's the first question. And then if you are engaged in commercial activity, you know, are you going to be considered one of the 12 specified categories, um, which most widespread use, you know, most the, the broadest category that maybe your website would fall under would be a, a offering sales or services. Um, and, and you could purchase either goods or services through the site. So, you know, I think if you're if you're a, a Girl Scout and you're setting up your cookie purchase site, I, I don't think you need to worry. Maybe maybe the Girl Scouts of America need to worry, but not you. And <laughs> I I used to work with them, you know. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So um, yeah. But I think That's you know, funny. in general, if you have a blog and you're not offering anything, you're not you don't need to worry about it. But a lot of small businesses that maybe don't have this on their radar do need to worry. 
And I want to back up to to the question about prevention. Um, another thing that you can do is if you're at the point where you're looking at insurance for your business, you know, employment practices, liability insurance oftentimes also includes a third party discrimination claim. So if, if someone's claiming that they can't access your your goods or services, you know, you might have insurance coverage for that. But you'd want to raise it with your broker when you're buying the insurance. You know, is there insurance coverage if someone claims my website is is inaccessible or my physical store is inaccessible? And the answer is maybe. So you you should definitely raise that issue with your insurance broker and, and have them educate you on whether that's something you want to consider. Great tip, great advice. Uh, what else have I not asked you that our listeners need to know about website accessibility and compliance? The last thing I think that I would mention is that, you know, if you realize you're out of compliance and and you're freaking out right now, don't freak out entirely because there is there is a sort of um, way to bridge the gap while you're evaluating how to bring your website into compliance. If you put a phone number on the site, some courts have said that having a toll-free phone number where you can provide access to the goods and services on the website in an alternative, and the courts use this language, alternative and equivalent manner, such as a 24-7 you know, toll-free access, or you put a phone number and an email address, that could help you know, bridge the gap for the time period while you are making your website accessible. And it's always a good idea to reach out to counsel and talk to them about whether maybe you want to put a statement on the site saying, we're getting this into compliance. Um, but that, again, depends on, you know, the level of noncompliance and the level of traffic on the site, et cetera, if that makes sense. But that's just one, one other thing to consider. Um, and it's not a panacea, not all Courts have found that that's sufficient, but it does provide you with some defense so you aren't just left totally unprotected for the time period that you're evaluating the problem. Thank you so much for being here, Bryn. I love chatting with you always, and thanks for giving me some updated info about a super interesting topic that I didn't know much about. So I really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Sahara. 